Welcome to Know Where to Run with Christopher White. Chris in Tennessee, you're on the air. Go ahead. Chris, thank you for tuning in. You can email me at chris at conspiracyclothes.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at conspiracyclothes.com. And um, you can go to the website, which is nowheretorun.podomatic.com or conspiracyclothes.com slash nowhere to run. You can go to the YouTube site, which is youtube.com slash nowhere to run 1984. And, of course, you can go to Revelations Radio Network um, or Revere Radio Network or iTunes, or any of those places, and find the show. So, let's get right into it. Um, first thing I wanted to do is just say generally, um, do some corrections, even though I don't have any specific corrections of anything uh, right here in front of me, but just generally, I've been wanting to say, you know, reiterate the fact that I'm, I'm definitely just a guy, you know, in front of his computer, saying stuff and you know trying as best as he can to reference it and I, I say that even probably needing to correct it because I don't try as best as I can to reference everything I said say you know something like uh, somebody like Alex Jones who basically you know most of what he says he has some kind of documented proof for or Bill Cooper that's kind of their shtick you know they don't say anything unless they got documented proof for I, I'm not even close to like that I mean if I, I think of all the times that I've had like just one-on-one -on -one conversations with people, you know, telling them about the whole thing, New World Order and the rest of it, and you know, just how wrong must I have been on these things that I've just asserted to be true? You know, I guess when it comes down to this whole like new paradigm, the real world truth situation, there is so much stuff that we get told to be true right off the bat, you know, it's like, okay, new paradigm, here's the world, and I think that we all have a tendency to just believe um, kind of a complete paradigm, even though it, we we sh should know logically that right at that point we can't know the entire paradigm, but we fill in the gaps with um, just, I don't know, whatever it is that we want to at that point, but anyway, I, I, I'm just saying that I'm, I'm just... Um, you know, I'm just trying to figure all this stuff out too, and so I don't want to want to make any claims that I, you know, you know, have figured figured it out or anything. I just, I'm just totally here with you, trying to get all the piece all this together. So, that being said, I, I don't know of anything that I've said that is, you know, very very wrong or just a, a big deal breaker of any sort. I, I, I'm just really talking about I don't can't even think of it but I was listening to a show not too long ago and it was like oh man that was wrong you know um so I know I used to play um a bit where I would here I'll play that thing that I used to play before uh, just about every show this sort of thing has cropped up before and it has always been due to human error how would you feel about making a change we fear change hello hello anybody home 
history, self-anointed seers have predicted the end of the world, and they've always been wrong. But, sweetheart, I have something they didn't have. A good feeling about this. Okay, well, let's get right into it. First, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that I'm sure we're going to cover tomorrow on the Frank and Chris show, but I just wanted to say a few things about it because I just, um, I just feel strongly about it, but it was this church shooting out in, um, East Tennessee in Knoxville, which is about three hours away from where I'm at. In case you didn't hear about it, basically a guy walks in with a shotgun and a guitar case into a um, Unitarian church in Knoxville and shoots up the place during a children's play. Uh, didn't shoot any children, apparently. It says, you know, he wasn't going to shoot any children. He loved children. But he shot um, some people and wounded about seven people, killed two, including a guy that jumped in front of the gunman. Eventually, people tackled him. And unlike most of these shootings, no, he was not killed um, himself. And it appears that he thought he was going to be, et cetera, et cetera. We'll see what uh, develops with this guy. Um, I don't know. I haven't really formed a lot of opinions. I've just done a little bit of research on it. I'll share it with you and give my opinion on it. First of all, um, the news stories are always a good telling way to see what's going on here, and all the headlines are now, he he um, he basically kills all these, he does it, his motivations are these liberal views of the church, which insinuates that he has very conservative views of the church, and then um, there is kind of like a political aspect where they're saying that he had like O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and... Michael Savage books and or something like that, and you know, I, in that way, it's kind of like you know, uh, uh, another attack on the gun-toting conservatives and how they're crazy with their right-wing crazy views. And uh, I'm not defending necessarily. Um, I'm certainly not defending Sean Hannity or any of those guys, um, but. Uh, I think the more important thing is this, this kind of undertones that it was, in a, and again, it doesn't have to be expressly stated. One thing you have to realize about the news is that if you're digging in, the more you're digging in, the less the less um, relevant it is, the digging in part to anybody else. I mean, they just got the headlines and they're done, you know? So the headline basically portrays this guy, and you can see people picking this up on blogs and they're running with it that this is, a Christian, this is a conservative Christian who doesn't like the liberal views of gays and, and blacks and things like that. When that doesn't really necessarily appear to be the case. This guy um, wasn't a Christian, although it does say in one of the, in a quote from the Knoxville Sentinel article, it says that uh, he, as youth, uh, Jim David Atkinson disliked being forced by his parents to attend First Christian Church in Harriman. Um, so that kind of gives the uh, another uh, some fodder for those that would say, well, this is what happens when you force kids into church and blah, blah, blah. Um, okay, so we'll, let me just give a few facts here. Um, obviously, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you may know that I generally think that these church shootings and um, you know school shootings and any kind of situation like this are usually done by... Um, multiples, that is, people with multiple personalities, but not just regular people with mul multiple personalities, but those that have uh, been created um, by a very technical process called trauma-based mind control, 
and that are programmed and trained as assassins, etc., etc. I'm not 100% sure this guy falls into that category. Number one, if he was, I have a, a hard time believing that he was um, taken out by just some guys tackling him. I think that he would have finished the job and, um, and you know, his programming, which is usually to terminate himself. And... Um, also, I, I don't know, but that being said, he was um, he was had a military background. Military records show that Atkinson was a private in the U.S. Army from '74 to '80. Served as a helicopter repairman for the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell. He was in active duty from '74 to '77, and was in the individual ready reserve until 1980. He he earned an expert badge for the M16 rifle and hand grenades and an aircraft crewman badge citing privacy issues the military wouldn't release Atkinson's discharge status um, usually this kind of thing is done for well multiple reasons but a lot of times it has to do with a big gun ban a law that has is about to be um, put into Congress or you know proposed or something to that effect and it's also used to just generally demonize um, a certain group of people in the minds of Americans very slowly and I think uh, my first impression is that this is part of that as well whatever the nature of his situation was um, the news carrying it is at least um, capitalizing on it but I think it's a little bit deeper than that just from a few different things and I'll go into them in here in a second um, it says obviously everything um, is Adkins, uh, the headlines, Atkinson disliked blacks, gays, and anyone who is different. I think this is something that they're just trying to portray as, again, um, Christians who short-circuit. I think that that's really the point that is wanting to be driven home, if nothing else, that Christians will short-circuit and shoot people when their um, views are challenged, etc., etc., and this guy obviously was not a Christian. I mean, he doesn't even claim that in the stories, and so I mean, it's ridiculous on its face. But it doesn't matter because it's just a headline to a lot of people. So let's take this to its logical conclusion. Actually, this is not really that logical at all. It's in fact, it's probably more conspiratorial than normal. But I don't think it's anything that you know, for the most part, the listeners haven't heard heard me espouse in some way or another, but but basically, um, you know, I've thought a lot about this black awakening that Rust Isdar um, says that the Satanists and Luciferians and cult multiples and um, these people are planning... And basically, it would be a worldwide trigger of these types of people where they would go around and essentially do this kind of thing, but it, a lot of them would be a lot more focused in killing uh, targets that they have been planning out and killing a lot of people in the positions of power and gaining a lot of infrastructure. Essentially, it would be a massive, well-placed Manchurian candidate coup d'etat on a massive scale. And at the when the dust settles from that, you would have um, a country, a world, in in the hands of people that probably didn't even know what they just did, and that is because they have multiple personalities, and they're if that if they're being used for something like the Black Awakening, are intact and probably have very 
um, very dedicated personalities that have no contact with um, one another anyway so my my thoughts about that have always been okay so let's just play that out in our heads that doesn't work to me because you have what would be unexplainable to the news agencies this would be definitely something that would be big news obviously a lot of people getting shot all over the place at the same time um, so it doesn't make any sense how the news would spin that for in any way that would be good for global government so um, and essentially you know when you look at the people that have created these multiples are are global government so you had you have to see you have to figure that they would um, have some thing worked out where where this would be play into the the you know paradigm the thing instead of working against it and the Christian shooter has always been the thing that makes the only thing that so far I've thought of that makes any sense now <clears throat> what they can do is they can have some event that can proceed it some scientific discovery aliens landing somewhere whatever some kind of thing that we they've already brainwashed us to believe that in the event of some alternate theory of history being quote proven then Christians would short circuit and go crazy that has been a very constant stream of propaganda that I think in that you could possibly have something like that where this kind of thing would be happening and people would say the Christians are going crazy I mean just imagine that angle on TV like how wonderful that would be to these people to have a reason to fill up all those camps with um, Christians because they're just a menace to society because they can't understand they, they can't handle the new change or whatever that is an angle CNN will, will take you know um, that is to think about how to them how wonderful a something like that would be and I, I tend to feel that a lot of different things would be happening at the same time and there would just be a lot of chaos but that being a, a overarching aspect of the chaos the real unifying factor for the world will be the hatred of um, and Christianity in the midst of a lot of other things you know and except and the reason that that would sell is because the people that are multiples are in a lot of cases and I mean, and I mean ser seriously is a heart attack here a lot of the people on TV the evangelists that you know in your heart are total Satanists are you know at least their their front personality may actually believe that kind of whacked version of Christianity that they're espousing you know um, a lot of times they have a personality that is that crazy off base non-biblical Christian making everything look bad in some cases I think that they are just knowingly doing it but I I believe that, that those cases are more rare and in the same way that they have a personality that does that they have a personality that does what this guy did and so in if a lot of the more public cases of during the Black Awakening are people like I don't know Joel Osteen shooting up the plate uh, maybe not him but you know what I'm saying like something like that um, then 
then you could really, really sell to the world. And this is, you know, the more you look into it, the biggest thing that they want to do is just demonize the Christians and make them look like crazy people. But anyway, I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that on the Frank and Chris show. And I'm going to take a quick break and we'll get into some other subjects here. My name is Vivian Howard. I'm the professor of bioimaging here at the University of Ulster in Coleraine. And I'm a medical pathologist and toxicologist. And my research over the past 20 or 30 years has involved looking at the effect of toxic substances on development in the fetus and the infant. This is generally recognized as an area of, or a period of life when you're especially vulnerable to certain effects. I guess the thing that got me interested in fluoride in the first place was the very, very low levels that you find in human breast milk. What that tells me is that throughout evolution we've built up a special mechanism for keeping fluoride away from the developing infant. Nature has devised a system for keeping fluoride away from the infant and we're circumventing that by putting fluoride into drinking water and I think there are consequences. So the question is why is it that nature has devolved a system which specifically keeps fluoride away from the infant? And the answer is it's a developmental toxin and in particular it's a neurotoxin. I mean there's lots of epidemiological evidence now that for example it might affect the intelligence of the child coming out of China and that's been reviewed by the National Academy of Sciences. They say that you can't be absolutely certain about it but there's quite a strong indication and we need further research. There also been other studies which show that it might be able to affect hormonal systems, endocrine systems, in particular thyroid levels and um, that can have an effect on IQ in developing children. If you take the normal range of thyroid in the mother, then there's a difference in intelligence of the offspring between the mothers who have the upper limit of normal range and the lower limit of the normal range of thyroid hormone. So, um, you know, we're tinkering with quite a sensitive system. So. The evidence is out there for us to have to say that we've got to be very careful. And my opinion is that there isn't a satisfactory one-dose-fits-all solution through treating a whole population via tap water. There are going to be some members of that population which will be more at disadvantage than others, and they will obviously include the fetus and the infant, but at the other end of life, people who've got marginal kidney function uh, will be more susceptible. And therefore, I don't think on a precautionary basis that we should be continuing the fluoridation of drinking water supplies. If governments don't have ways of making sure that people in the areas that are fluoridated who are susceptible, like, like bottle-fed babies, are actually stopped from being exposed in that way, then they have no right, really, to be using a mass medication like this.
Revelations Radio Network. Many hosts, one message of salvation. RevelationsRadioNetwork.com Okay, welcome back. I want to talk a little bit about this John Todd or Johnny Todd. I think it's... Um, I don't know. I've heard it. I've seen it both ways. But I heard about it through Brother T and his show called Alternative Christian Views, and it's on the Revelations Radio Network. And he um, was playing a few clips from John Todd. And just a quick rundown: John Todd uh, uh, was kind of preaching and speaking back in the '70s and '80s, and he was a person that claimed to be a former member of the Council of Thirteen of the Illuminati and a, a high-ranking member of the Collins family and um, a a high-level druid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I have to say. After listening to a lot of his stuff, I am pretty much, I agree with him, and uh, there are little bits and pieces of things that are a little off, but so far I've been able to look at them as, you know, uh, just his perspective at that time and different things. So far, nothing that would make me think that this is has another agenda. And the reason I say that is because it it gives me so many ideas of how to kick the devil's ass. I'm sorry, that's just how I'm looking at it. It's it's really, really... It, you know, every once in a while you run into one of these guys that has a lot of this information that, to me, is like another door kind of opens up to more info about all this stuff and the true nature of everything. And this guy, you know, is one of those times. I think, you know, I felt that way with a lot of different people you know, throughout the years, but this guy, he's, he feels like that to me as well. Now, Brother T's conclusion on John Todd was that he didn't like him or whatever, and I, I respect that, but uh, his reasoning wasn't um, as in-depth as I would um, would want to uh, to judge him by. And, and again, I'm not uh, judging him, I just, uh, it's just, it's just information, you know, it's just discernment, I'm just sitting here you know, taking the good with the bad. I mean, he says some things that, like, he calls out different things, like, will happen next year. Like, for instance, I think this is around Jimmy Carter's administration, and he said that the false energy crisis was what was going to cause um, World War Three, in conjunction, I think, with the collapse of the dollar. And he was saying it was going to happen the next year, because if they had, the, at that time, you know, the kind of... Um, thing going on with the gasoline and Carter administration and the weird energy thing. And he was saying it was all fake and that, you know, it was, and I just, you know, I could look at that and say, well, there you go. He's wrong. It didn't obviously didn't happen there. But then you think, okay, wait a second. Um, he probably been told that, you know, and somewhere along the line that this false energy crisis was going to cause World War Three, And that was just his interpretation of what he was able to see, having been out of it for a few years and whatnot. But here, we are 25 years later, or whatever it is, um, and we've got a false energy crisis. And if you don't believe me, you know, just kind of look into this whole idea of um, false scarcity or, or um, you know, the idea that we're actually capping wells and we're swimming in oil and that by, by making everybody believe that there's a serious scarcity that they can charge you know, $150 a barrel for oil that um, we have an abundance of. So, 
not to mention we're also dealing with the uh, collapse of the dollar and all this can easily be said to be used as a mechanism to do a lot of things to cause this chaos with the high grass prices and to ruin the economy etc but also to um, as a catalyst for World War III, as he said. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I hope I'm not making excuses for the guy because I'm sure, you know, and I've listened to a good deal of it, and, you know, there are things in there that are like, hmm, you know, but at the same time, the things that, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's just, it, it's, it, I really think that there is so much information in there that really um, gives a clear way of where to target evil in our attacks on it through you know prayer and and um you know just awareness that i i can't possibly imagine you know some i i see a lot of times there is and i know my own sayings that you know one it, this could be disinformation for those that understand that but this is not the case not at that time not in the 70s you know people like that got killed back then you know or, or put in jail and this guy was put in jail he was put into a mental uh, asylum and died there mysteriously I guess some of the reports are saying um, but he, he had this weird audio tape transcript from prison that kind of explains the crazy kangaroo court thing going on with his trial and, and stuff it was just it's you know I mean back then there wasn't any reason to have this kind of disinformation for these people because not only if people did believe in the Illuminati, they believed one of the cover stories for the Illuminati, the John Birch Society, or you know some kind of thing like that. Nobody was ever making the connections to like a worldwide satanic witchcraft ring, you know, controlled by the you know Rothschilds. I mean, nobody was really making that. There wasn't no need for a disinformation campaign and I think it's evidenced by what was um you know done to people back then. I think nowadays it's it's people don't get killed as often because um I I don't know, rarely first of all any anybody's hitting a nerve that 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 uh actually you know pisses them off. I think a lot of some they own so much of the thought concerning a lot of the awakening that that it's all good for them for the most part and I know that's hard to believe but um, you know unless we're striking at the root of evil and we're just hacking at some branches you know it doesn't matter it's just it's just pruning the tree to make it grow stronger so uh, yeah so anyway I'm not gonna play any of John Todd I'm just going to link in the show notes some of uh, a place where you can download a lot of his material and I encourage you to do it download it put it on your iPod if you have an iPod and you uh, have a hard time getting mp3 play mp3s on there you can actually go through the files your iTunes folder and then hit podcast and you can you can insert mp3 files into that folder and it will appear uh, in your in your uh, you know, general stuff, I think. Okay, let's move on here. <clears throat> I had to turn the TV on to create a noise barrier. If uh, you're hearing something in the background, that's what it is. <clears throat> okay, so the next thing I wanted to talk about is tracks, um, <clears throat> like Christian tracks, like handing out tracks. I, I um, you know, I've never really handed a track out or anything like that, um, but I think that it is a very key thing to 
the next kind of level of this uh, this awakening because I mean there might not be the internet forever and we are going to have to kind of focus our attention on our communities and some of you already are and that's great you're way ahead of me and probably a lot of other people um, I'm more of a, like a keyboard kind of patriot at the moment but um, I would very much think that the tracks in a well done way are an absolute necessity for um, this this um, world we're living in and so what my proposal is is that I think that we need we, I've said this before but I'm serious I really think that we need to have people start making um, making these things if you can make one you know in Photoshop or whatever that's that would be excellent but if you could just type something out and my my vision vision is basically I don't really have a vision I'm just saying but is basically a lot of information on a card or you know like a a handbill but you know even if it was just an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper and you could fit I mean I'm talking about laying it all out there like just being from you know I don't know just laying everything out there about what's going on in the world and and um, and that includes the spiritual nature of the deception and it also includes stuff like you know 9-11 and fluoride and vaccines and you know stuff like that but I'll leave that I, I, I don't know I, I, I got two sides of of thought here. One is that I should just do it, you know, that I should just sit down and write, because um, it's it's a very difficult thing to do is to try to encapsulate everything that's going on in something that you'd want to just tell somebody. I mean, that's that's a very big project, you know, just to edit it mentally and then present it in a such a way. And I, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't feel like I'm going to do that anytime soon, and I feel like it needs to be done sometime soon. Um, I, I think that if somebody could just do that, and maybe, you know, there, you know, there is different kinds of things. Like maybe one of them could just be geared for a particular type of uh, information and, and that kind of thing, but I, I just really feel like you should just get the whole thing out there and then you know if somebody sells something like that on their windshield you know at Walmarts and baseball games and stuff it's like what is this you know you can't you can hardly discount it because here it's like it's saying a lot of stuff you know and even if it had some sort of references or some way to check it out that's that's what we need we really need to just start um, fishing for men out there that, and women that can wake up from this matrix, you know, and some of them won't, some of them will be like, let's just, you know, just totally discount it, and some of them will be struck hard by it, by um, a conviction from, you know, the Lord, hopefully, I mean, that's what the whole thing is here, is, and, but, but what the mo most important part is not to just wake them up to you know the new world order but to already get them to bypass a lot of the um the other stuff that's going on once you wake up to the new world order then you got to sift through the marshes of just crapola in order to come to the truth of the truth movement and so maybe we could just and imagine i, I often think 
and I find this in my own kind of like talks with people and you know telling them about all this stuff I mean I have an easier time taking a person who has not woken up to the new world order completely or at all yet to get them to already see advanced concepts about like deception and and the and the anti-christian sentiment and stuff they they usually take to it pretty quickly um, more so than those that have been around it for a while and you know have had a chance to be indoctrinated even this, ever so slightly into the mystery schools and stuff like that so um, anyway I guess what I, I'm asking is if anybody uh, is interested or thinks that they can um, try to present a case or you know something like that or maybe you have a printing thing that you want to you know help in some way but we should really try to get together with this project and if you're being convicted at all about it send me an email please and we can get together and we can you know work out how to make a website about it and to you know promote it and get it out there and you know get PDFs online so that people can um, use it if you want to email me it's Chris C-H-R-I-S at conspiracyclothes.com Chris at conspiracyclothes.com so I'll be looking forward to that. Uh, let's see, a few other things. Um, okay, so Frank Lordy did an excellent um, podcast, second podcast on theosophy. This one really just kind of dug into the specifics, and I assume that he's got more coming. And I just really encourage those of you who um, are trying to find out why what the whys about Jordan Maxwell and Tessarian and why they're doing it is that what it is that they do and about it, it it makes it all fall into place once you understand theosophy um you can understand why Sarian and maxwell say the things that they do it, it just makes all these things start clicking and then you're like you mean to tell me this whole time this thing has been about this theosophy and you know apparently it's really 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 close so that's interesting um Okay, uh, a few more things. Uh, I've been been doing some research on the full armor of God, and I'll be doing a podcast on that pretty soon. I've actually been thinking about starting a separate podcast where I'm just sort of more or less, excuse me, preaching, I guess. Um, so I'll be looking into that, and so look forward to possibly seeing another podcast come out and be geared more towards that aspect of things. So um, that will be interesting, but also I want to play a clip from this guy and talk him up a little bit the guy's name I'm sure a lot of you know this guy is named Ravi Zacharias Ravi Zacharias rocks in my opinion I, I've had actually books by him before and um, I, and different things and I've heard him here and there but I've never really sat down and listened to him and I found out that he had a podcast on iTunes, and so I downloaded that. I think it's called, um, I can't remember, but the acronym is R-V-I-M, or, or R-Z-I-M for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, somewhere around there. You could find it on iTunes. Ravi probably will get you there pretty quickly, R-A-V-I. But the guy is just a very great speaker, and it's just some—he's an apologist and a philosopher, and he's just incredibly intelligent and 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 gifted in his presentation ability. So I'm going to play a clip from Ravi Zacharias, and I think it's uh, I don't know about 20, 30 minutes, something like that, maybe. And um, 
So just uh, enjoy it, and I encourage you to check more of his stuff out because he's such a wonderful speaker and teacher. So that's it for me. You can go to the website and check the show notes, which is, and I'll try to link everything that we've been talking about here. And you can do that at conspiracyclosed.com slash nowhere to run or nowhere to run.podomatic.com. Where in the last days we should start acting like it. Power to the people. All glory be to God. Later. In our modern-day philosophies of church growth, we are unhealthily preoccupied with programs. And I suggest to you, programs are always secondary to people. God prepared a person before he implemented a program. We create a program and then find the person. Do you believe that God can still do great and mighty things? Do you believe that he wants to do great things, that he wants to touch other human beings and impact the world through your life today? Welcome to Let My People Think, the weekly program featuring Christian apologist and teacher Ravi Zacharias. For many people, the thought of being used by God to touch other people's lives is an inspiring, exciting thing. We want to be used by God. Well, the good news today is that God does want to use you. He wants to do great things through your life, things that he planned from the very beginning. On today's broadcast, Ravi looks at how Nehemiah approached the incredible task of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Ravi draws out some vital principles for anyone who wishes to impact their world, and he seeks to inspire those who may be disillusioned or doubtful when it comes to reaching others for Christ. Here's Ravi with the first part of his message entitled, Is There Not a Cause?, Jesus and his work and the work of God have never been caught off guard. Just in case you and I think we are all of a sudden faced with the perplexing antagonism of secularism, what are we going to do? Please do not forget that the early church grew in the womb of a contrary philosophy in Greece and in the womb of Judaism where there were many struggles in the receiving of the Messiah. After Peter's sermon at Pentecost, if you could take in all of the Christians and put them in one place, they would have fitted in one of our larger churches of today. But today when you see the great strides that have been made, you begin to realize that the church has flourished in spite of tremendous opposition and the church will continue to grow. As a matter of fact, one of the surest ways to guarantee church growth is to try to persecute it. I think history has proven that. I'm going to read for you from the book of Nehemiah. And my message is hopefully a meaningful one, entitled, Is There Not a Cause? Is There Not a Cause? And obviously it is raised in a rhetoric sense so that you and I would agree with the fact that there is a cause that demands the attention of the Church of Jesus Christ. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should not my face look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. 
Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand, I think this is so important here, folks, please listen to this. Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Nehemiah was a civil engineer. And I think that's good to know. He wasn't a trained theologian. That is also good to know. Although he had the assistance of a man like Ezra, who led in the priestly responsibilities, Nehemiah had that shrewd ability to gain into positions of leadership and learn to wrest it to his own advantage for the glory of God. There is nothing against striving towards position of leadership if the goal within your mind is to use that position for God's glory. When you realize that Moses was in a very privileged position in the palace and how God used him. When you look at Paul, how he was well learned in all of the philosophies around him. And that's why he stood on Mars Hill there and challenged the axioms of the Greek philosophers. Here we've got a man placed in a very high position as the cupbearer to the king. One of the things the cupbearer did was taste the food before the king would consume it. And the fascinating thing to me is that here a Persian monarch has a Jewish man as his closest confidant. This is one of his enemies. But you see, integrity is such an admirable quality that even your enemies will trust you if they know you're a man of integrity. And so here he is in the Persian palace, gaining such position of ascendancy, but there is something about the mind that can be preoccupied with priority issues, and Nehemiah was a preoccupied man. So his brother Hanani comes to visit him one day, and his first question is, Hanani, how is the city of my fathers? How is Jerusalem? Remember the word of God in Isaiah, it says this, Can a woman forget her suckling child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are ever before me. The psalmist says, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem to my chief joy. Jerusalem was the city which could not be enunciated even as a name without stirring up emotions within her faithful. Now Jerusalem has been trampled under. The Babylonians had really laid it to ruins. The, the temple had been desecrated by the troops that had come in. And a hundred years, 140 years have gone by since that desecration. Nehemiah is in a foreign land. He is still thinking of his beloved city of Jerusalem. How is Jerusalem doing? And Hanani says, Nehemiah, you're going to be sorry, you asked. The city of your fathers lies in ruins. The gates thereof are badly burned. The walls are in complete disarray. Nehemiah, we are a byword to our enemies. That happened in the month of December. 
Five months later, the king looks at Nehemiah and says, Why are you constantly looking so upset? What is bothering you, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah said, King, and he says this, by the way, he says, the first thing I did was pray to the God of heaven. And he says, King, if I were to tell you what is on my heart, you may not be too pleased to hear it. But I cannot live here in the comfort of your palace while my city, my home city lies in ruins. The king says, what is it you want? He says, will you please send me back and allow me all that I need? Give me letters for all the resources that I need and send an army to protect me so that I can get back and rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Do you know what he was asking the Persian to do? He was not only asking for privilege to go back and build, he was asking for the Persian to pay the bill. That's nothing short of audacity. But he says, because the good hand of my Lord was upon me, the king granted my request. He's going to the Persian monarch and asking him to build the Israeli walls, a nation that they had dominated. But the first principle I want to leave with you is a very, very pivotal principle. And the principle is this, you will never lighten any load until you feel the pressure in your own soul. You will never lighten any load until you feel the pressure in your own soul. Nehemiah personally sensed the pressure to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he was going to play a leadership role in this. Please hear me, my dear friend. In our modern day philosophies of church growth, we are unhealthily preoccupied with programs. And I suggest to you, programs are always secondary to people. God prepared a person before he implemented a program. We create a program and then find the person. You will notice at key moments in history, it has been the individual that has emerged in order to blaze the trail and carry on the task. And the program almost becomes secondary. It has taken us 2,000 years to start writing textbooks on evangelism. For 2,000 years, evangelism has been done. And the reason is, we have become sort of in a kind of a uh, academic preoccupation. We think if I teach the student how to tell his faith, then he will go ahead and tell his faith. Evangelism is one of those things that is better felt than telt. And Nehemiah sensed the pressure in his own soul, and he was willing to go and rebuild the walls. When Dr. Graham's letter had come to me, requesting that I speak on the lostness of man at Amsterdam 86, he had underscored the principle that the evangelist, more than anything else, needs to recognize that man without Christ is lost, and if he doesn't recognize this, he has got no message left. Did you hear that? The evangelist, more than anything else, needs to recognize that a man and a woman without Christ is lost. And that, to me, is the cardinal belief in my own evangelistic posture. In trusting the word of God, in committing my life to Jesus Christ, I have chosen to believe what Jesus Christ has said about man. And when Jesus Christ says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no man comes unto the Father except through me, it is an absolute unqualified statement. I may choose to say Jesus is wrong and take the consequences, but I cannot choose to say Jesus did not say that. He believed in the fundamental lostness of man. His entire mission statement is summed up in that one statement, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
I think I have for you one of the finest illustrations to show to you how a recognition of man's lostness serves as a propelling force. The first missionary America ever sent overseas was Adoniram Judson. If you have not read his biography, please read it. One of the finest minds America has ever produced. He was so brilliant when he was 12 years old. Get a load of this, folks. Pardon the language, but listen. When he was 12 years old, he was teaching the adult Sunday school class the book of Revelation from the original language. Now, if that's not intimidating, I don't know what is. He was so brilliant that people became petrified of Mr. Judson, and rightly so. When he got into college, he made the fatal mistake of thinking he was more brilliant than God. And his intellectualism got to him till he disavowed his faith. And then he became a terror. He went to Providence College in Rhode Island. He became a terror to his classmates who were Christians because Judson was so powerful in debate that he would knock them off any of their beliefs and they would avoid him. He had a roommate, a fellow by the name of Jacob Ames. Jacob Ames and Judson became very close. Jacob Ames came into Providence College professing to believe in Christ. He graduated out of Providence College professing to be an atheist and he gave the credit to Adoniram Judson. His mother didn't know how to deal with him, so she just prayed for him. Father tried to talk to him, but he figured he'd knock the faith out of his own heart, so he decided to leave Judson alone. Many years went by, and the faculty members kept a close eye on Judson, wondering what such a genius was going to do with his life. And one day he was riding to the city of New York to be trained for theater. At the end of his interview, he was riding back to Boston, and it was a long, long ride back. Uh, he was so exhausted, he stopped in at an inn and asked the manager if he could check in for the night. And the manager says, sir, we really can't give you a room. They're all full. Mr. Judson says, Mr. Manager, I'm so tired, I'm falling asleep. Would you let me sleep in the front hall? I'll get up before it's dawn and leave here uh, because uh, I'm so tired. I'll pay you the price of a room. I just need to lie down. He said, Mr. Judson, I do have a room that's available, but I wasn't going to rent it out because adjacent to that room is a man who's very sick. From his body is emanating a stench of decay. He's dying and he's crying in alternate fits of stupefaction and raving and profanity. But if you want that next room and he won't bother you, I'll give it to you. Judson said he won't bother me. But Judson lay awake at night listening to this profanity, listening to a man in untold agony crying out for help. And Judson tried to smother the sounds, tossed and turned, and gradually the sound subsided and Judson fell asleep. Next day as he was paying his bill, he said, what happened? Did the man feel better? He said, no, Mr. Judson, the man died. He died in the early hours of the morning. Judson says, out of curiosity, what do you do? A stranger's come into your inn and he dies on your hands. He said, yeah, it does pose a problem, but I'll tell you something. As I've looked over his papers and trying to contact the next of kin, I cannot put together how a man of his credentials and his, his brilliance has died such an ignominious death all alone in these conditions. He was an honors graduate from Providence College in Rhode Island, Mr. Judson. His name was Jacob Ames. And Judson paused for a moment and said, what did you say his name was? And he said his name was Jacob Ames, a Providence College graduate. Adoniram Judson, in his biography entitled To the Golden Shore, says this, I got onto my horse and I started to ride back. And I could not see in front of me, for the tears began to pour down my face. And as the tears were pouring down my face, two words were pounding into my heart as the hooves of the horse were pounding into the ground. And the two words were death Hell, death, hell, death, hell. 
He says, I got off my horse and knelt on the dusty road, repented bitterly of the way I had betrayed my God. For Jacob Ames now lay delivering up an account of his own soul because I had knocked out any faith that he'd had in God. He checked out of the United States and went to India, was kicked out of Calcutta and went into uh, Burma. Do you know that his first wife died out of an oriental disease her body had contracted for which she had no sense of immunization? And out of sheer loneliness, he remarried. His second wife died. Three or four of his children died. His missionary colleagues died. And this man was laboring almost in a funeral director's camp, losing all of his colleagues, till finally he himself realized he was in an awesome battle. It took him seven years to lead the first Burmese to Jesus Christ. And yet, if you read Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts, he will tell you something that Judson did, which Burma will always be indebted to. As a matter of fact, if you go to Adoniram Judson's hometown today in Malden, Massachusetts, you see, Judson was imprisoned by the Burmese authorities because of his successful preaching of the gospel as many, many started to turn to Christ. And Judson was, was put into a boat after being imprisoned for 18 months and people could not recognize him anymore. And the Burmese authorities knew he was going to die a few days away. So they put him in a boat to send him back to the United States. He never made it. He died en route back. In Malden, Massachusetts, there's a small gravestone that says Adoniram Judson, born such and such, died such and such. The ocean is his sepulcher. The Burmese Bible is his monument. His record is on high. He translated the Bible into Burmese. His wife translated the Bible into Thai. And Don Richardson points out that in Burmese folklore, there is a grim reminder to the people that the answer, and Judson didn't know this, by the way, and uh, Don Richardson points out that in Burmese folklore, there was a belief that someday a man was going to come with a book which would have the truth in it, and Judson spent years and years and years producing that book. Death, hell, death, hell, death, hell. Unless you and I recognize that the person out there without Christ is lost, we will never carry a burden and a personal pressure within our own soul. And my friend, may I challenge you to seek God for that burden. There was a second principle that emerged from Nehemiah's life. As soon as he sensed this burden in his own soul, the first thing he decided to do was pray and spend that time with God. One of my great concerns has been that in talking to many, many Christian people, the biggest flaw in their lives, as far as I can see when they share it, is that they have no personal devotional life. Prayer is a distant experience for them. And yet when you see the giants in the faith, whether you move to a man like Wesley or you go to a man like Judson, or you go to Henry Martin, that great Methodist missionary and so on, you, you begin to see some of these great ministers of the faith, and you begin to see that every man who has been successful in his spiritual life has been successful first in his personal life alone with God. Preaching in Cambodia, Phnom Penh, and Barambang. Barambang was the first city to fall in Cambodia. I remember preaching to a group of Cambodians in an arena, and my interpreter was a young Chinese gentleman, Daniel Lum. 
At the end of every day, as we'd go back to this tall building where we occupied the top room, very meager, meager conditions. It was 1974, just a few months before Cambodia fell. Every morning at 4 a.m., his alarm would go off, Daniel's alarm would go off, no matter how exhausted we were. And he'd wind his way up to the roof of that building. And every day, in a language that I couldn't understand, but a pathos that I could, this man began his day with a tremendous pouring in prayer. If you're a praying Christian, your faith in God will carry you. If you're not a praying Christian, you will have to carry that faith and you're going to get thoroughly, thoroughly exhausted. That's why I believe in this principle that with all of the odds that we see stacked up against us, our battle is still a spiritual battle and we win it first in prayer. May I ask you, when was the last time you got on your knees and prayed with the Islamic nations, that the gospel would make a penetration there. When was the last time you rose up long before the sun had arisen and recognized that the burden beating upon your soul was the burden of a world that needed to be won not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God, so that we bathe that moment in prayer. You see, I think Leonard Ravenhill is right. He said, when they had prayed, the place was shaken. He said, our preoccupation is when we have paid, the place is taken. He said, we've got that preoccupation with structures, while the early church had its preoccupation with the power of communicating and communing with Almighty God. The most important thing in your life is your personal devotional study each day. If you fail there, you will fail everywhere. If you fail there, you will fail everywhere. Sensing that burden, meeting it with prayer, thirdly and quickly, he went into the proximity of the situation and saw the destroyed walls and began to realize that that's where he was going to have his labor cut out. Think of our university students of today. Please think of them. Some of them sit in front of professors of philosophy who tear their faith to shreds. Some of them are pining for someone to come and help them to give a viable answer. They are living in a soap operatic world where sensuality is offered to them every day that they go into those classes. And sometimes I feel a guilt within my own heart that we as evangelists have betrayed our thinking people. We have preached so simplistically, and I don't mean simply, simply is different to simplistically. We've preached so simplistically and taken volumes of problems and shrunk them into simple statements. We've told people that when they make that response, all of their problems are immediately solved, neither of which are true. You have found the source of the solution and it's only the beginning. But there's a battle that dominates you as you try to serve the Lord. And the plurality of questions in the scientific worldview and the philosophical worldview are there. And the church needs to go where the walls are broken. Two of the most powerful instruments we have within us are our youth and our community in the business world. And we need to move in and get closer and closer. Remember what I said, Charlie Studd's comment. Some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue yard within a yard of hell. May I encourage you as a believing person to go out there, to meet with the neighbor, to talk to him, 
to meet with a friend, when you're sitting in a plane or traveling somewhere in a bus or a train, talk to the person next to you. God wants to use each of us to share His love with the world. Ravi challenged us first to connect with the spiritual lostness of our world, to ask God sincerely to put the needs of people on our hearts. As Ravi said, we will never do an awesome thing with God unless we feel the need deep in our souls. Ravi also reminded us that an intimate prayer life is a must for those who wish to share Christ. To share God with others, we've got to know Him ourselves, and that comes through prayer. And lastly, Ravi challenged us to go to where the needs are, reminding us that Jesus didn't tell us to wait until the lost came to us, but to go out and find them. The message you heard today is available in its entirety, and when ordering, ask for message number 111, entitled, Is There Not a Cause? Again, that's message 111, entitled, Is There Not a Cause? If you'd like to place a credit card order, call us at 1-800-448-6766. That's 1-800-448-6766. The order line is available 24 hours a day. If you prefer the Internet, go to rzim.org. There you'll find information about the entire RZIM ministry, as well as essays and articles. The Online Resource Center is an interactive, user-friendly way to preview and order resources, such as Ravi's book based on this message, Is There Not a Cause? Once again, that's rzim.org. If you'd like to write, address your envelope to RZIM, Post Office Box 921-939, Norcross, Georgia, 30010. That's R-Z-I-M, Post Office Box 921-939, Norcross, Georgia, 30010. Canadian listeners may contact our office in Canada at 50 Gervais Drive, Suite 315, Toronto, Ontario, M3C1Z3. The Canadian address once again, 50 Gervais Drive, Suite 315, Toronto, Ontario, M3C1Z3. Please be sure to give us the call letters of this station when you contact us. Knowing which station you're listening to can help us better evaluate the effectiveness of the broadcast. This weekly program, Let My People Think, is a listener-supported radio ministry and a production of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia.